Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, once in a while, I break my own self-imposed format and talk to someone I've always wanted to interview. This, people, is one of those episodes. Before I get into all that, though, I am delighted to tell you that Material Matters will become three-dimensional this September. Yep, we're launching a brand new fair at Barge House Oxo Tower Wharf from the 22nd to the 25th of September, and it will, frankly, contain some wonderful things and brilliant thinking. Look out for an exhibition celebrating the upcoming monograph from the design agency Layer, for instance, as well as site-specific installations from the likes of Gallery, Rupp and Form, and artist Stuart Haygarth. There will be exhibitors exploring the value of the materials we use and looking at subjects such as circularity and waste in particular. To take a couple of examples, Alkesh Palmer will be showing a new lighting collection made from orange peel, while Circuform gives industrially designed furniture a circular life. Not only that, but there'll be big furniture brands too, such as Scandinavian companies Foraform and Ragnars, as well as Hydro, the global recycled aluminium company. And, naturally enough, there's going to be a talks programme with speakers including Nigel Coates, Beth and Laura Wood, glass artist Christopher Day. The list goes on, frankly. Finally, designer Michael Marrott will be my guest for a live version of the podcast. It's all terribly exciting. Oh, and it's also free. You just need to register by going to the visit page on the website, materialmatters.design. There's also an Eventbrite link in the blurb that comes with this episode. Now, after all that, my guest this week is Michael Young. The world-renowned product designer first made his name in London during the mid-90s and quickly found himself working for significant brands, including Magis and Rosenthal. After a sojourn in Iceland, he traversed the globe and set up his practice in Southeast Asia. Over the years, his portfolio has become wildly eclectic. Young has designed furniture for Coalesce, speakers for Kef, suitcases for Mont Carbonet, and bikes for Giant. He's also reimagined the Mini Moak, created his own beer, and produced gallery pieces to boot. Michael, how are you? Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you very much, and it's really good to reconnect after all of these years. Well, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yeah. So tell me, where are you at the moment? You're obviously in your studio by the look of all the things behind you, because we're on Zoom and you're somewhere else entirely across the world. So yeah, can you describe where you are for us? Uh, I'm in uh, my little micro office, which is my kind of private studio where I get some peace and quiet. And it's just full of all of the, uh, the rubble that I've collected over the years that has inspired me or things that I've made, books that I like bits and pieces, just little space that I, I like to be in. I'm quite intrigued by the Indian headdress that seems to be over your left shoulder. Yeah, that's something I bought years ago. It's from the Sulakota tribe and it's, uh, you know, it's the real deal, but it's just so beautiful. I was in uh, Brussels years ago and I walked past a, a beautiful gallery and uh, saw it and it was just love at first sight and, you know, somebody had to take it and that was me. <laughs> Do you wear it ever? Oh, you know, it's the real thing. And uh, of course, one day I will, but I love it too much. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, looking at your social media, you appear to have had quite an itinerant time since the pandemic struck. I know you're in England for a while, but where else have you been? Where have you lived and and, and what's happened to you? Yeah, during the pandemic, um, ultimately, I've been locked in Hong Kong up to two years really, but I I decided to fly the nest in September because I had some projects in the UK. 
prior to that, I dropped into Italy where things were easing up to meet some clients and finally launch a few little projects. And that was uh, last year in you know September uh, 2021. And then I flew over to the UK where I was working on a, a project, stayed there for a few months and finally decided, you know, the, the whole family moved over, ended up in the Cotswolds. Couldn't get into Hong Kong, so the entire entourage, we flew to Thailand, and then we finally got back in April to Hong Kong. So it was a long trip. Yeah, yeah. So how long were you away from Hong Kong? Seven months. Wow. We couldn't get back in because there was a three-week quarantine here, which you're not going to do with uh, you know two kids, a nanny, and, and your mm. missus um, mm. in a hotel room. So yeah, and then I guess more recently, I... Uh, Went to Bali and then to Singapore. I did one week's quarantine and I'm off to Tokyo in two weeks' time. But you're back in Hong Kong now? I am in Hong Kong now, yes. So eventually, did you have to do the three weeks quarantine or how does that work now? We waited until it was a one week quarantine and the government brought that in. So we just zipped back immediately. Can you describe a bit your working setup, Michael? Because you have, what, one studio? You you certainly have a team. How, How do you structure the practice? Well, look, you know, one thing that pandemic did do is uh, I opened a studio up in Shenzhen two years ago, which is a lovely, beautiful, big space. Uh, We opened a bar and a cafe and moved a lot of things from Europe over there um, to furnish it. But unfortunately, they closed the borders and that became very problematic, sort of making sure that we could get in and out. It's easing up now. So that's been fairly uh, on hold for a little while. So the structure really is now just Hong Kong, but a lot of my staff have been stuck all over the world in Australia, France, the UK, elsewhere. So we've been working very remotely over the last um, six months to a year. And we're finally just adjusting to it all. And the dust is settling a little bit so we can get a process that we're comfortable with going. And how big is the staff? How many people do you employ? We have seven people at the moment, but we've been working together for a long time, for 18 years, 15 years, eight years. The wife does the accounts. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, no, it's a blessing to be honest with you. It's better than me doing it. You know, we've got a resource pool around the world that we've sort of evolved as I've traveled and we've made friends and found common interests and ways of working. So with a team that size, do you end up managing them or is it all kind of a self-managing setup? Um, It's definitely become a self-managing setup where people know their responsibilities and accountabilities and time management. I guess my biggest stress is that, you know, I have to be having a studio like this is being available a lot of the time, which means, you know, of course, when people are on Europe time, just as I'm finishing my day, I've got to wake up again. And, you know, I I, I get up early. I get up at 5 a.m. every day and run on the beach and stuff like that and then have to find a second wind. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, obviously you've done all this traveling during the pandemic and we're stuck in various places, but did it affect your practice? I saw you do an Instagram live, I think during the first lockdown with the Dutch designer, Richard Hatton, saying you were launching your own beer brand. And that's happened, right? You have launched your own beer. Yeah, at the very beginning of the pandemic, yeah, I did my first sort of thing with Richard Hutton. And I was never comfortable with that kind of thing. I've always been very human and I'd always prefer to meet people and do things like that. But, you know, Richard's obviously a good good, good friend. We go back 30 years from his days when Droog started. What I was doing was launching the office in Shenzhen 
And to do that, we decided to create our own beer, which was called Beer Buddies. And the idea was we had a little uh, QR code on the side. Then anyone who was in the design or creative industry could connect to other people who were part of that community. And we did actually launch the studio in Shenzhen with it. And um, we launched it with some other media in Design Shanghai. And we've still got it going, but until the borders are open, we've actually kept it a little bit low profile. It wasn't necessarily just a commercial enterprise for me at the end of the day. You know, when you go to a design event, people drink beer and we did loads of different flavors like disco, you know, rock and roll and loads of crazy patterns on the cans, which reflected that. So it was more of a fun gesture. Can we talk a little about your process? Because you designed a huge panoply of things, furniture, bikes, cars, speakers for the likes of Kef, as I said, objects on the more arty side of the spectrum for gallery, all amongst others. Is the way that you work on each piece always the same? How do you create a piece when everything you do is so different? I think what really interests me in design, of course, I've been doing it for 30 years now, and you do tend to get rather a large portfolio by that time. And you are influenced by different things at different times and different places. And I guess uh, someone who's intrigued by travel and history and every aspect of craft or technology, I like to, or I've found working globally, one of the most intriguing things is I enjoy working to a brief and I enjoy working to the mind of a client who understands or feels they can plug in to what they've seen in the past and what they think I can bring to their future. So I guess that does bring a certain level of eclecticism into the scenario, but ultimately it's the execution of a unique situation that excites me. And I've always been like that and it helps growth. So there isn't one process. There isn't one thing you do every time. It it changes depending on the client. Um, I guess ultimately, you know, I, I, I'm still very commercial and in what I do. And I I always try to look for a a space in the market that will help propel the project and try and push all of the uh, elements of the product into a new area that could be the material or the lack of it in the market or the technology. And I try and bring those things together by a way of elimination and use that to, to build the product. Mm. I mean, you said in the past, Michael, that you don't use a computer when you design and that making is really important to how you produce a product. Is that still the case? Yeah. I mean, my drawings haven't changed really since, you know, I was, uh, I left college. I just know what I want in my head when I decide what to do, but I am able for whatever reason to help those very simple childlike sketches turn into something with uh, people who can process information on a computer. But it's not always computer-driven. There's been a lot of very anarchic projects made in factories where they're sort of live performance, which they definitely excite me. And I think that goes back to my days working with Tom Dixon, where every day was uh, welders and live performance and see what happens. I always kind of dreamt of being an industrial designer when I was very young and wondering what that was like. And so we have the, this mixture of things going on. And when you say live performance, I mean, obviously with Tom, you're talking about, and we've talked about with Tom on the podcast about welding, Yeah, but you're going to a, a factory and see things being made and that will spark an idea. 
Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the aluminium foam things we're doing back in the day, and we're actually doing mm. them again. We've found a new factory to, to help us. This is a process which you can't, it's like mountains being made, you know, it's metal being melted and exploded at, you know, 600 degrees. And the end product is an idea you might have about something or the coloration, but it's not necessarily something you can control and trying to get something beautiful out of it. Or on the other hand, you know, when I work a lot with, um, you know, in China, um, working with artesian craft, the craftsmen have an entirely unique process to the way they approach the material and you're interacting with them. So that's what I mean by live. It's not a, a tool pumping out plastic that you send a 3D file and this is what you get and you do a, you know, a strength test analysis and you control your ability to, you know, your knowledge of form or shape to create something. So there's definitely two sides to me that, you know, I'm more interested yeah, yeah, yeah. in the inside of an air molded chair than the outside. Right. Interesting. Do you think you have an aesthetic? nowadays is it easy to tell what comes out the studio does that matter to you obviously there are studios who keep it really tight you know they just go dush 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 they want people to recognize everything that they do but i find there's so much i have so much intrigue with different things i mean if i stopped that intrigue i could do the thing that i do or i used to do which was a very process driven shape and form factor, but I continuously become excited by different cultures and try and explore that and see what happens. Mm. I mean, one of the projects I'm fascinated by, partly for nostalgic reasons, was when you were asked to redesign the Mini Moke in 2016. How did you decide what parts of the original to keep and, and what you changed? And do you put any of yourself into a project like that? That was a really personal project because before that project started about two years beforehand, you know, there's three cars I love in the world, Mini Moke, Land Rover, and E-Type Jaguars. I built my own in a really beautiful way. I was uh, had a place in Australia at the time, and it seemed like the thing to do. So I rebuilt one with a guy and uh, who was just rebuilding Mokes at the time. But I, I tried to upgrade it and do n new things with it. It was really beautiful. I actually met someone who was bringing them back into production. And he basically said, we don't really know what we're doing, but you've got a moke, you know how to design, you've got a team, you're in Asia and blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot we can do. So ultimately the point of starting that project was bringing it up to modern day usage. And that involved designing over 160 parts. But I think my point really of entry to that project was paying homage to the car and not doing, you know, not necessarily that there's anything wrong with, you know, doing a new version of the Beetle, you know, 40 years later and making it cool and groovy. It was more about actually getting to base camp, which was getting it back on the road, but adding some new elements. So I could have taken it into a million different directions, but I just loved uh, the heritage of the car and, you know, what um, Sir Zigonis had done. And it was more giving it back to him than myself. Was it originally designed as a military vehicle? It was, mind? yes. And it failed abysmally in, in its original task, right? Yeah, I mean, if, you know, I think the first version was 1959. The idea was you could airlift it and uh, drop it out, out of a, an aircraft and, you know, then theoretically drive it, which was a bit of a, an optimistic concept at the time. <laughs> that, that was that. But I think um, the fact that it was just taken on as a cool beach car, propelled it forward. So really the, the result was bringing it back to life and, you know, taking my ego out of it and just getting it back on the road. And 
that's in a way what a designer should be doing, despite the fact that media can sometimes push them before the product. Hopefully, loads of people will get to you know enjoy it now. Yeah, yeah. When you design something like, that, do you feel you have a kind of I don't know, isogonus on your shoulder? Um, yeah, I certainly feel like, or I felt then that if I disrespected the car, then I would have one hell of a lot of people going, uh-uh, here's a designer messing <laughs> things up again. Um, but I'm appreciative of the design and, uh, I wanted to get it back on the road and keep the main details. And it was difficult, you know, it was really complex. The homologation involved for everything. You know, I'm happy that it's, it's having a rebirth now and it's currently now being made in the UK again after a long journey, which has taken 10 years by uh, Moak International. And it's continuously going through an evolution. It can only improve. Yeah. Yeah. You set up in Hong Kong in what, 2006. I think you'd been in Taiwan before that. Yeah. So. Can we talk about why you decided to move to Southeast Asia? It was just fortuitous in a way. I bought a studio in Belgium because I needed a big space and London was really expensive at the time. And an art collector helped me get one. And I was also in Reykjavik at the time, a bit of a bizarre, you know, geographic cycle. I've, if I look back, I think, what was he doing? <laughs> you know, but, you know, I am an explorer Ultimately, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, New Zealand next. It was out of the blue. I got some phone calls saying, look, we love what you do and we'd like you to come over and help us on some projects. And they were not traditionally the sort of projects that I'd been working on in Europe, which was for Swire and Moroni or Capellini or Magis, Rosenthal, all of these great brands. Big Italian furniture. Yeah. 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 And um, I went over there and Bluetooth and rechargeable batteries, it was a new invention at the time. And it's a, quite a crazy story, but it was the great grandson of Chiang Kai-shek. And he asked me to help him set a company up in Taiwan back then. And I thought, wow, that's pretty historical. So I went <laughs> over, <laughs> you know, it was a pretty crazy phone call. But anyway, I went there and um, I got taken to some really high-tech companies to see what I could do, bringing a little bit of exploration or European charm, how they would call it, into the evolving design culture that was coming together at the time. And... I just got obsessed by seeing the scale of the factories that were out there, the technology that they were using. And I went out there and I came back to Europe and they kept saying, can you come back? And we've got another project and we want to do this. And then, you know, I was there for a week and then another project occurred and I thought, oh, this is insane. It was the ability to explore things that I couldn't in Europe, back then, you wouldn't go there. Now you wouldn't fly somewhere to do a Bluetooth speaker. But back then, it was like a total reinvention of how people interacted with products and material in their home and with objects. You know, we're, we're talking, you know, the iPod wasn't even invented then. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the whole technology, everything was coming together. And I just ended up staying for the journey um, yeah, yeah. and enjoying it and learning and educating myself. So there wasn't really one Damazine moment where you said, right, I'm upping sticks and moving to the other side of the world. It was like a gradual evolution. It was a gradual evolution, yeah, mm. over, over the course of, um, by all accounts, something quite fast, which was, you know, 12 months. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I like the speed of things over there. It was really appealing. And what's it like working in China? How does it differ from Europe? 
there's many, many different sides to it because it's such a large country. You know, there's the, the, the history that people have forgotten about or don't know. I mean, ultimately, I suppose, you know, when China became a, a supplier to the United States, a lot of the factories became very highly developed. And it was pretty much a place where you could do anything you want. You could have any idea and people will have a go at it. You know, you say that to a designer, they're going to be there in a shot, you know. What do you want to do? You can do anything you want. The stereotype of Chinese design in particular is this kind of notion of copying. But I'm guessing that's not what you see out there. Or is it what you see out there? I would definitely say when I first arrived, people didn't understand the value of design. Design was more like, okay, well, if you can make, you know, spaghetti bolognese in Italy, you can make that bolognese in China, but you can also make an Alessi chair in China. You know, that culture was pretty much in the same context. You know, it was that, okay, we can make money out of this. This is economic and um, we can do that. And, but I don't, I don't think it was necessarily a, an evil attack on the concept of let's copy everything. It was a, a sort of early days of cultural understanding of, you know, what potentially IP may have been. It's still complex now because you're in a country where you've got epicenters of highly developed culture. Beijing, Shanghai, and now the Greater Bay Area and whatnot. So I think I never really took offense to it. I always thought it was part of the global cultural evolution of business design and everything. So I never found it too offensive. I always found it part of the bigger picture progression. When I look at China now, they've arrived at a point where there's greater levels of design. Mm. And do you think about Oh, do you have to think about the geopolitics of it all, Michael? I mean, China is increasingly seen in the West as a security threat. The FBI and the MI5 gave a joint address in July warning of the danger of the Chinese Communist Party and what it posed to the UK and the US. Do you worry about how that might shape your future or is that not something that concerns you? Um, obviously, it's been a concern and, you know, I've got a foot on both sides of the planet, you know, but I've got mm. family in Australia and New Zealand, which is, you know, a bit further, but I've got to be, you know, I'm, so I'm kind of in the middle and, you know, my family in, in Europe. And of course, there's two sides to every coin and to, the security threat does scare me a lot. I'm nervous about talking about certain things on WhatsApp and suddenly you think, oh my God, did I say something wrong there? And certainly, you know, before COVID, I was working in Shenzhen a lot where facial recognition is bang out there. And I'm a, a naturally born jaywalker, you know? I mean, you know, I have no, no I, I have got no respect for traffic signals, you know? You know, that's, you're wasting my time. And then suddenly you think, am I going to get points put on my my uh, personality uh, portfolio of like, okay, well, this guy crossed the road on a red like 10 times a week. And that social profiling is definitely something that puts a little bit of slowdown on your, it makes you think it's probably quite good for me. Has it stopped you jaywalking? It did in Singapore the other day, but you know, how long can I wait? (laughs) Um, The way China has differed for me than a lot of other people is that because I went to Taiwan so early, I've sort of grown into the blood veins of generations. So when I went out there, a lot of the guys who are big in business or in the design business now were students then. And I was always pro trying to help young guys and students. I didn't just land like oil on water and say, this is me, bang, do what I say, do what I do. I was more like trying to understand the culture. And the throwback of that is that I've done a lot of exhibitions for the government here that try and use things or elements that try and develop their city's 
industrially. You know, I've been the mm. creative director of a lot of events and I've kind of focused on my job and try to do well what I do. You know, I'm aware of things, but I think on my last trip to Europe, you know, you've got to understand that China's got its problems, so is Europe, and nobody is perfect. And I guess ultimately, I've just tried to find balance and a way to live that I feel、mm. comfortable with, and I keep inside my box and try to create economy for the companies that I work with. Oh, fair enough. It's a tricky one. I'm not a politician.、Um, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day,、yeah. it's a big question, Grant. <laughs> When you're working on these different products. Does the thinking behind them or the materials you're using do they feed into each other? I noticed, for instance, that you've worked on carbon fiber for the bike brand Giant. Then there was a carbon fiber chair for Coalesce, which is part of the Steelcase brand. More recently, there's been a carbon fiber suitcase for Montcarbonnet. I'm guessing that's not a coincidence. No, they're all connected, and you suddenly realise that a lot of these factories manufacturing a lot of the same for the same companies, and you make a lot of friends within that little universe and. Slowly, things start to evolve. My research into carbon fiber and giant led me to work with Coalesce and Steelcase. Did Steelcase come to you, or Coalesce come to you and say, "No, looking at somebody who works in carbon fiber"? How did that relationship start? I started financing things myself and just making pieces in carbon fiber, which is what you do in my profession. They were never really things that could be commercialized on a mass scale because to do a mass scale carbon. Product you need a really big, powerful team of people. So I was doing sort of more arts-related carbon with the intent of scaling up. I had a meeting with them and I had some carbon fiber stuff in the studio, and they said, "Whoa, this is just like no one's done this kind of thing before." And I said, "Yeah, I know it's not something you can do on your own." And by the time you add a brand that size and their resources and HR, and you combine it and the factory resources as well, so it's, it was definitely a big team effort to do it.、Mm. It was incredibly successful to commercialize that. Is a, a mass-produced item for offices and or sort of office home use. And then was it obvious from there? Were you always going? Well, I, I've always wanted a carbon fiber suitcase. How does that happen? No, that was my friend who introduced me to the factory. Who said, "Michael, we're starting a carbon fiber luggage company.、Uh, we want you to design it. We know you've worked on it a lot, and we trust you because you've done it for ten years. And the great thing is, you know." When you introduce a designer who hasn't worked on the material before, you do get new ideas. But it is a little bit scarier when you're looking at the investments of carbon fiber. Yeah, they just wanted my take on the carbon fiber, and I think the friendships between myself and understanding of the factory and how they operate came into that. And the luggage—that's、um, uh, a beautiful, you know, the lightest piece of luggage. I mean, everyone's saying, "Yeah, we've got the lightest luggage in the world."、Um, you know, it's an important part of. Travel, you know, because、mm. you'd rather、mm. have one more pair of underpants in your suitcase than a heavy yeah, wheel. Yeah, that's true. If you're going easyJet or Ryanair、yeah. or something, absolutely. Yeah, yes, suitcase handy. Yeah, yeah, I had the delights <laughs> of that universe when I was in Europe lately. It wasn't too bad, to be honest. Can we talk about your background, Michael? How you arrived where you are now? Because you were born in Sunderland in 1966, so the industrial northeast of England. I think I'm right in saying your father dismantled ships. While、yeah. your mother worked with people with special needs. Yeah, so my birth certificate actually has a scrap metal merchant on it, which you know back in the day was a probably not the best title to have. <laughs> yeah, and here you are working with carbon fiber. Yeah, they used to have a shipyard and dismantle ships, and after the Second World War, and it was a huge place.、Mm. 
Yeah, and a sort of sideline of that was, of course, you know, after the Second World War, my grandfather on my mother's side started developing products for the disabled, which was obviously in quite high demand back then. They were looking after manufacturing the Model 70, which was uh, the first one-stroke Villiers engine. I ended up kind of trying to work for them, but I failed every single exam at school. I mean, you know, Sunderland was a pretty... There was the North and the South back then, and you know I was yeah. on the wrong side, apparently. Well, th- there still is. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about levelling up, it's not happening. Yeah. But, anyway. but um, I wasn't an academic, and back then, in you know, fifteen years old or whatever, I was, you know, I got into music and um, decided that was a more, you know, I didn't have any choice to be honest with you. I mean, when you fail every exam, you're like, whoa. Yeah. I think you've talked more recently about having dyslexia. An extraordinarily large number of people I've done on this podcast have been diagnosed with dyslexia. Were you diagnosed at school? No, at school, back in that time, they just thought you were stupid. You know, you were called stupid and, you know, you're thick. It was more the evolution of finding, you know, when you fail your maths or English five times. And obviously, if you can't do that, you fail biology, then you fail chemistry, then you fail blah. Um, So it it was a hard learning curve. But, you know, I did enjoy art, but they stopped that when you were 12 years old. Um, back then and music. So I played in a band and ended up dyeing my hair purple and going to Stonehenge when I was 15. And So what kind of stuff were you playing? Because I know, I know you're a big Motorhead fan. Yeah, I guess I just heard Motorhead and that was it. I was, of course, into Hawkwind, but I'm still into all of those guys. Still listen to it all. But, you know, my kids just scratch my records now, so. They hate it when that happens. Oh, it's so painful. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it really is. Hiding everything you own in cupboards. <laughs> <laughs> my son just started getting into vinyl. It was quite sweet. Yeah. I bought him a turntable. He's 19. I bought him a turntable and a, a few records. At one point he turned to me, and this is before actually I bought the records and the turntable. He's looking at my stuff. He said, dad, these LPs, have they got two sides? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah they yeah. do. Look, you know, I mean, I still buy a lot of music, a lot of the Brian Jonestown massacre. You know, I'm just generally into music, just generally into music. And it's always been a big part of me. Did your parents get you? Did they understand that you had dys... I mean, presumably they didn't understand you had dyslexia, or did they? Not really, no. I mean, their idea was to put me in detention for longer to try and learn, where you just don't learn anything. But I think, you know, in in hindsight, I'm actually working on a book at the minute, which has been approved for a very large American publisher, and the whole entire beginning of the book is actually about dyslexia and the impact that had on creativity, and Tom's written the uh, foreword in that It was quite emotional going back there because we wrote about what can you actually do when you leave college with nothing? You're going to end up on the street. You can pack a box, nothing. But when I left home and went here and there, Tom had this workshop and it was, there was actually just this very beautiful group of people who had no money and were just making things and learning about craft. It becomes more important as time goes by to realize the importance of that moment in time. We were really focused on that. I think it was never really recorded correctly because, of course, music back then in the early 90s was recorded really well. It was important, punk, blah, fashion, blah, architects and all of these things. But design was in its very early stages. And there was a lot of people in my position there. You know, even when I was at college, I got in straight into the guys who'd failed all their exams and faked their exam certificates. <laughs> I was going to ask, was there a moment where you thought, yes, I'm going to be a designer? Because you obviously found education very, very difficult. How did you take that step? I actually, yeah, I remember it very clearly and I just never knew what it was, but 
I just looked at my mother's interior design magazines and I kind of hated it. But, you know, I always thought there was something there. There was some freedom. And I, I do recall just slowly evolving, seeing people like Ron Arad casting things in concrete and Tom taking marble from banks and turning it into furniture. And then it was like, whoa, anyone can do that, or at least you can try. And it was, for me, it was a little bit punk. It was like you, anyone can get up on stage and sing into a microphone if they want to and have a bash and maybe they'll make it, maybe they won't. And that was kind of, my, I, I, I didn't have a choice. I mean, literally I was terrified at the time. I was like, all my friends were becoming doctors or they had some form of security, but you know, I was still living on sofas or blah, 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 you know, when I was in my early twenties. But thankfully I was kind of a punky, terrible purist and a few of the right people picked up on that and Terence Conran started to buy my things right after leaving college. So I got the right, you know, something just clicked. I was going to talk to you about the importance of Terence. Yeah, later. Before that, I'd quite like to talk about university, mm-hmm. going to Kingston. I mean, you're a lad from the northeast of England. Design is quite a middle-class preoccupation, I would argue. Did you feel settled in Kingston or were you an oddity, I wonder? There was a lot of people and, you know, obviously Kingston back then had a really strong ethic in, in, you know, fine art. Um, it, you know, we were always terrified of the uh, fashion department because they were like, you know, up there in the outer reaches of creativity, as were the architects. And the furniture design wasn't really that well respected back then. It was still on the lower levels of getting out of the craft market into, you know, people like Jasper starting to make it and Russell F. Grove. So it was just evolving outside of um, a lot of the stuff that had happened in the 70s and 80s. Um, Not really. I didn't actually care at all. What I cared about was I got a grant from the government. Yes, which you spent. Yes. I'm I'm interested in whether you're a good student, Michael, because there's a story about you spending your entire student grant in Bibendum one evening. Just on the day, yeah. I wasn't used to having money at all. I didn't know what to do with it. So I bought some lobsters and champagne and walked back to Kingston. (laughs) And I thought, okay, that's better. I'm back to normal now. But I think the great thing I found at Kingston was that there were a lot of like-minded people. I think when people start their first year of education, everyone's a bit confident and like, hey, I can do this. I'm in college and you're that. But um, I fell in with some really good people and we looked after each other. But I did realize that I was, after the first year, I wasn't employable at all. You know, I wasn't going to be able to get up at nine and go home at five. Luckily, that's really when I decided that I was going to have to learn how to do something which was weld and make a living and just try and sell things. And that's when, you know, I think probably slightly before we met during the early days of the Crafts Council, all of these people started coming to the surface. Jane Atfield, Michael Marriott. It was a really, looking back, a beautiful period of time. And so did you work for Tom Dixon directly after Kingston or before? I did year one and then I started working for him for the first summer. Right. So I started working for him at the beginning of Kingston. What did you learn while you were there? I mean, to weld, presumably, but yeah, other things? Yeah, I learned that there's, you know, shapes either, they're either thin at the end and fat in the middle or the other way around, really. <laughs> and that, that was the beginning of my verse in the vocabulary of shape and form. But I learned how to be free and just watch a lot of other people just make things and sell them you know, go and buy things and reuse them and that you could actually pull things together in a maverick fashion 
and create things that people want to buy, which I never understood before. I learned a little bit of everything, really. You know, the streets of London, what a gallery was. Maybe you could tell listeners, I mean, I vaguely remember, but what the London design scene was like. I mean, you graduated in 92, but going into the mid-90s, they did feel like London was coming alive in terms of design at that point. And I guess you had the YBAs and you had Britpop happening as well. You, you were on the cusp of a new Labour government. It was quite an optimistic time, wasn't it? It was um, great. The only thing I knew, you know, I was considered, you know, if you were doing what I was doing, you were kind of considered to be a craftsman. Whereas I always wanted to push forward into industry. I don't know why I wanted to sell volumes. There was just this underground scene going on. And I'm talking about Red Church Street in 92 was, you know, a rat infested thing with the owl and the pussycat and that was it. But a lot of people were just starting to make things. And I think that was most certainly instigated by the likes of Jasper Morrison and whatnot, you know, putting plant pots on top of each other and saying, you know, I can get that in a magazine. And that was really inspirational for a lot of other people of my younger generation or, you know, slightly younger. There was just a community started to build and I think media started to pay attention more to, or at least, you know, my first experiences were bands like Oasis loaning furniture for photo shoots and slowly things started evolving outside of the academic side of what we know as design onto a more fashion street level. And so I remember one, was it Works of 94, 84, sorry, 94, yeah, (laughs) whatever it was at the Crafts Council. And all of a sudden, there was 10 people doing what we were doing and um, it became a thing. And it was definitely obvious that there was a real buzz around and there was an exhibition every night and then people from Germany would come over and start selling it and Drug Design started. There was definitely a buzz and people started opening smaller retail outlets to sell things. It did have that vaguely punk ethos still. It's interesting how long the tale of punk was into the 90s, a, a kind of DIY way of going about things but but you were picked out by Terence Conran particularly in 97 he said you were one to watch I think in the Sunday Times and that must have been important I'm guessing at that moment at the time I didn't really understand what it was but I mean Bobby Charlton had picked Beckham Twiggy had picked Kate Moss and there was a whole list of them and I was in that magazine and it was like I didn't really think too much of it but it was important and you know I I was someone to watch at the time I guess um, in the sense that it was fairly transparent what was going on in industry uh, on the streets back then. It was easy to spot. But yeah, I mean, uh, I did a photo shoot with him and David Bailey. I was terrified. I mean, you know, these <laughs> Goliath giants of people in a studio in near Rosebury Avenue, both smoking cigars and me sitting there, listening to those two guys argue. <laughs> you know, it was just like, my cigar is bigger than yours. Um, he just said, you know, can we just get this over with, please? And I can get the hell out of here. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there were a few landmark bits of press back then. That, um, But it was press was beautiful back then because you really meet up with journalists and in London and spend time with them. And really, it was a very poetical, live, organic, um, emotional, real, real thing. It was, it was very um, physical and there was a, a really strong community developed at that time. Mm. No, it did. But then you left. You left London in, what, 97 to go to Iceland. What, why? Well, I, um, you know, I, um, my work took off really, really quickly. I had no business acumen. Whilst I was working with Tom, 
I was backed financially for the first time after two years by Yoichi Nakamusa. Who was the founder of E&Y, right? E&Y, which was a, a gallery furniture place in Omotosando in Tokyo. And, you know, we're still good friends. And after that, he sort of packaged everything I did and financed things that weren't really being done. And my work was definitely more kind of Britpop than Baroque. And it just appealed to a different, a new generation of persons. You know, I opened a gallery in Covent Garden and I just couldn't generally cope with, uh, I wasn't press hungry or um, it wasn't something that the ethic of what I was doing, I was actually doing something to survive as a human being and eat. <laughs> and, you know, that was all I actually cared about. I cared more about being able to eat and not get into debt, which I was doing really, really well. I mean, my, my parents had to bail me out because my accounting system was a bin bag. I kept everything, but I just threw it in a bin bag. And I remember Paul Mould, who was my mum's secretary at the time, had to go through all of these bags and the inland revenue. I just wasn't interested. And I think I felt like um, I needed to change in 97. And, you know, I met Catherine Alina and decided, okay, let's run away and go to Iceland. <laughs> and, you know, I thought I'd taken something in my, my mind as far as I wanted to take it. And I needed to do something new and get more industrial and less crazy, more controlled. So it was also to do with where you wanted your practice to go. It wasn't just a personal decision. No, I, I think I always wanted to go somewhere really quiet and just chisel away and work away. Mm. Um, and I was always intrigued by that as a culture and it had a, a big influence on the things that happened after that. Oh, that's quite interesting. In what way do you think? Um, it made me realize that there were other ways to do things than just in London, that there were other ways I could spend my time and wake up in the morning and focus. And, you know, I wouldn't be going to a party every night, which, you know, an opening, which at that age, you generally, you know, you go to an opening and then there's another one, another one, another one. You know, whoa, these things just don't stop. And it was the first time I'd really stopped. And Madras had started working with me. I designed the doghouse and I felt like I'd really achieved something then with shape and form. It was the first time I'd used a computer. And, you know, there was a lot of intrigue about Reykjavik at the time. I ended up doing a show at the Museum of Modern Art with Mark Newson and Jasper Morrison. And we did shows with Madras over there. You know, Stefano came over, you had to see more James Irvin riding around on snow scooters on glaciers. Bless him. <laughs> it was just, yeah. Um, yeah, quite a thing. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned the doghouse for Magis, which was quite famous at the time. Yeah. Uh, I think designed in 2001. Right. I mean, presumably you could have spent your career working with those Italian big brands or European brands. Did you take a conscious decision to broaden your scope? move out of just furniture? Um, I did. It was no discredit to any designer or any company, but I just felt like there were so many other people at the time by then that could do way better than I could at designing commercial sofas for contract work. And it was just, you know, my DNA was still, despite the fact I was looking for clarity, still looking for new typologies and new materials. And so that never really, you know, the, 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 the last seven years or however long it had been, um, I still wanted to explore. And it led me to reevaluate everything. And it's, um, I've still never really designed a, a comfortable sofa system. <laughs> <laughs> so did all that success, it came as a shock by the sound of it? Um, to be honest with you, I've never really taken any notice of it. Um, 
because it's just never, I was, I took it for granted and not in an arrogant way. It was just what happened. And you find yourself with all of these great people and great companies, but it was just part of something that happened. And I was just glad that I could do that something and that they liked it. I think at times maybe someone can say, oh, Michael, he's a bit arrogant and aloof, but I'm actually just rather shy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm not the kind of guy who likes to hang out at parties. You described yourself in FX a little while ago, the design magazine is getting more cantankerous with age. Yeah. Is that true, do you think? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think um, cantankerous. Did I say that? Did I? You did, yeah. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, I probably got it off my dad. Yeah, I can't remember saying that, but it's probably true. Um, <laughs> I can't remember saying that. Yeah, don't worry. Okay. Don't worry. I, I, I love throwing quotes back at people. My wife would what, definitely say are, that. Would she? Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. I'm intrigued, Michael, by when you're in the position that you are, um, how you cope with criticism. I remember, and maybe I'm making this up, but I, remember, I seem to remember in about 1999, you wrote a very angry letter to Blueprint when they were negative about, I think, a champagne glass. You oh, designed. yes. Um, <laughs> you told them that their editorial was shit, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. I remember that. And I do remember Alice Rawthorn at the time saying that was a brilliant letter. It's great they published it. The last sentence was wrong, but it was a good piece of writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do but, you need to have a thick skin in your position? Yeah, I think uh, Eugenio Peratz from Magister, you know, to be a designer and keep it going, you've got to have B-A-L-L-S of steel. <laughs> So I think a lot of creative people are continuously concerned about what people think about their work. And I've made a lot of mistakes in time and that's generally down to bad decisions and, you know, things going wrong and just emotional things. You can't be expected to do good things all the time. What mistakes have you made? Oh, look, I just think there's some designs that I've done that are, you know, I've had to do for money at the time and, you know, People call that compromise, and but when you've got a whole load of stuff to do and bills to pay or something not going right and you've got to do it and you're not in the right headspace, you can do the wrong things and then you get judged for that and that will affect your next job and then you've got to pull yourself out of that. But, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years now, so, you know, I have developed a way of pretending something never happened. I think Constantine Gritches, Gritches, I still can't say his name, he said, as designers, we're all learning like everybody else to improve what we do with every design we do. And it's a really good summary of, you know, we're all just in evolution until we enter the cosmos to do the best we can. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely conscious of that. And I think increasingly so with, there's a lot of younger designers coming through now. And I guess with computers, there's a lot of similarity in design. So to find your pathway through what is unique about what you're doing is getting tighter and tighter. And that is both from a creative point of view and a commercial point of view. But I guess I've still got some bullets left in me. I'm glad to hear it. Would you write that letter now out of interest? Oh, yeah, I think I've done one quite recently, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, you know, I give people 99% love, trust and faith. (laughs) And there's 1% bunny boiler in me, which is just like, if I give my heart to someone, (laughs) they're going to break it, (laughs) that 1%. And no, I think on a professional level, commercially, I would not. Mm. <laughs> it's a good letter. Yeah. It's stuck in my head for 30 years nearly. Really? And obviously, that memory has lasted longer than the magazine, rather sadly, but there you go. I used to be like that all of the time. And I could just add one thing here. I spoke to Michael Marriott at an event probably five years ago, and he was at the dentist, and he read an article that said, um, 
I think L decoration, yeah, they had said, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, a penis reduction. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Michael was at the dentist <laughs> and he couldn't get his treatment done. <laughs> I was more akin to the music industry and I think I loved the way musicians got away with saying what they wanted to say. And I've since learned it's not the same in the design industry. Okay. I read in another magazine interview, an icon interview, that you have a recurring fantasy of retreating to a cottage in Devon with a bunch of dogs. Is that still the case? Yeah, very true. I'm definitely one to retreat and not isolate myself, but I love my own space and time and stuff like that. But more recently, you know, we're looking at some land in New Zealand where we're going to build some micro houses, which will definitely be a very new, unique experience in doing something more out of the spotlight. I mean, I've never actually liked going to a, the opening of one of my own exhibitions. Which dovetails with my final question, because our time is basically up, Okay, which is plans for the future. Micro houses in New Zealand being one of them, by the sound of it. Well, I'm actually off to Tokyo in two weeks' time, where I've developed some new micro houses, sustainable micro houses. It's really happening, and it's kind of strange to think that my career could take a twist like this and... You know, I designed them last year or, and COVID stopped travel um, and it's just opened up again. So to get into, I'd say, you know, I'm not an architect um, and that wasn't the brief. It was uh, housing as furniture. That was the brief. And I answered it according to their their needs and they're happy. And um, so I'm going to do a housing development over there, um, which is amazing. Yeah, that is. And I, yeah. Wow. You know, twists and turns. Yeah. When is that going to open? Well, I'll go and visit the factories in two weeks' time, and um, but I think sometime next year. Very good. Very good. Well, we'll look out for those. Michael, thank you very, very much for your time. Really appreciated that. Thoroughly enjoyed myself. I hope that was okay, Grant. First interview in a while. <laughs> <laughs> to find out more about Michael and his vast portfolio of work, go to michael-young.com. It would also be wonderful to see you at the New Material Matters Fair that's running from the 22nd to 25th of September at London's Barge House, Oxotower Wharf. It's free to come, you just need to register, which you can do by going on to materialmatters.design, that's materialmatters.design, and clicking on the visit page. I'll also put an Eventbrite link in the notes to this episode, so look out for that. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.